Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The American death toll during the COVID-19 pandemic has now passed 100,000, and scientists at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health have estimated that over half of the deaths reported as of May 3rd could have been avoided had social distancing and other control measures been implemented one or two weeks earlier. Poor Black and Latino communities Domestic and gig economy workers have been particularly hard hit by both this pandemic and its economic impact. And now as summer is soon to begin and, and people are thinking about vacation and, and outdoor activities, some fear that we might see surges in infection rates. Investigative journalist Bob Henley, who covers national and local politics, economics and, and policy for public radio, Salon, the chief leader and other news organizations, has joined us each month since concerns over the coronavirus began to grow, and he joins us again now. Welcome back, Bob. Thanks for having me, Leonard. Now, other than the pandemic, the big story in the news over the past few days has been the death of George Floyd after a Minneapolis police officer pinned him to the ground while he repeatedly pleaded, I can't breathe. And, uh, and then uh, the protests that have followed. You've written a number of articles over the years about stories of violent encounters between white police officers and unarmed black men. And you began with what happened in Newark in 1967. Has that event been largely forgotten? I, I think so. Well, actually, it's a continuing narrative. I think that we have to look at uh, the convergence of the COVID story and the, the burden that this pandemic has placed on communities of color and policing is part of the never-ending fallout from uh, America's original sin, uh, slavery, which it just has not been able to, uh, to work through. And we are seeing it continue to play out in all these different iterations, both economic and public health. In the, in the form of uh, police, we, we, what we've had is a system that has, has promoted this kind of abuse by law enforcement. And, and it's been done in a way where, um, you know, like just take, for example, in New York City, over the period of time that Mayor Bloomberg was in those 12 years, the city of New York taxpayers ended up paying over a billion dollars to settle claims for poor police behavior. In some cases, it resulted in someone dying. In other cases, they were scarred for life. In yet other circumstances, they were sent to jail unjustly. And this has happened across the country. In the instant case we're talking about in Minnesota, one of the officers involved was involved with one of these tort claim payouts. The city pays the money. There's no consequence for the officer, and no one admits any guilt. And this permits the officer to continue to operate, putting his colleagues uh, at risk, as well as the general public. So uh, we have had any number of uh, prominent cases. Uh, it doesn't seem to stop. There was the Michael Brown case in Ferguson, Eric Garner in Staten Island, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, and those are men. There's also uh, the um, some women who've been killed uh, Brianna Taylor, Brianna for Taylor, example. Yeah, that's a really so, egregious case where an EMT was, I think she was shot while she was in the news report at the top of the hour. Uh, discussed mm -hmm. that. So uh, has this, do you think that this has made, had, had any impact on the way police officers have been conducting themselves? 
it's, or are they it, getting it, away it, with it, really it? it? It ranges. There have been some progressive responses de-conflicting uh, the way the police respond. Uh, the Obama administration back in 2015 attempted to put limits on something that happened after 9-11 where the federal government was selling uh, or providing at cost, I think even sometimes for free, military hardware, mm-hmm. which was given to the police, uh, which was used to, in many cases, to prosecute the so-called war on drugs, uh, which inevitably uh, created you know, this, this huge mass incarceration movement and where you have, you know, uh, communities of color that consume drugs at the same rate as the regular as the white population, yet the enforcement was um, was far more draconian in communities of color. And so this had a consequence, aside from incarcerating over two million individuals, resulted in the disappearance of an entire generation of parents. So this got to be something that was measurable. My work at WBGO in Newark, you could go door to door and find grandparents who were pressed into raising their grandchildren because their their children and the parents of those of the grandchildren were either incarcerated or caught up in something related to the war on drugs. And 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 the war on drugs is just an extension of Jim Crow. And it, it really is also as we put in a larger uh, analysis, it has to do about that's all part of this this uh, thing that's impacted the poor working class, which is the increasing concentration of wealth at the top and and uh, a situation where people just feel like the fix is in across American life. I mean, coming out of the we've talked about this frequently on your show, the coming out of the Great Recession, this the thought was, well, you know, we've turned we, we've uh, we've recovered. And in reality, if you look at places like Ferguson, if you look uh, throughout uh, America's heartland and in places in the industrial Midwest, the deterioration continued. The uh, foreclosures continued, the zombie homes. So Main Street and Martin Luther King Boulevard was, was led to deteriorate, which set the stage for COVID. I mean, this, you know, look at this. We had three years of uh, our, uh, the average life expectancy declining in a row. So we were already acutely ill. We were already w- with this kind of systemic racism um, as, as a framework. And so this whole system was, this crisis was foreseeable, both the social justice one and the public health one. They are so, so the life expectancy decline, uh, is it hitting mostly minority groups or is it uh, covering the full, the, the total population? Well, the, the, that's an aggregate. And ironically, what was happening was that the, the big decline was driven to a significant degree by the opioid crisis. And mm-hmm. what was amazing is that there was this kind of, well, the drug issue was an issue in America for years. Once you started seeing um, the, the death rate pop up in suburban areas and you started to see that this opioid addiction issue was cutting across zip codes. Then it became a crisis. Um, and and the, but what has happened is that even look at what happened with the, the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. Like that was that was an improvement, but it still left millions of people uninsured and underinsured. And then in the in the years since we had a situation where 
we had a president, Donald Trump, that targeted specifically the Affordable Care Act to try to undo what it had done. And then in the process, uh, continued the disinvestment in public health. So all the very things that would be safeguards against the kind of um, outbreak that we had was uh, were either taken apart uh, or zeroed out totally. And this disinvestment in public health had been happening um, under both parties. That's nothing to understand. Like, I have done so many stories about hospital closures. And, and that's because our whole healthcare system, our for-profit healthcare system, is based entirely on scarcity and profit. And so we started closing hospitals in, in rural areas, in urban areas. And so it's that very infrastructure now that is in such crisis because we, we made it so that it was like, you know, this draconian inventory control, never any level of redundancy, just enough to get by. And in communities of color, uh, much less to get by. Now, wasn't the Affordable Care Act originally proposed by a conservative group, I think the Heritage Foundation, and, and then implemented in Massachusetts under Romney Care? How different was is that from uh, what the Obama administration came up with? It was the, the framework, uh, the, there was, it is an irony there, but what ended up happening was uh, the Obama administration uh, looked to try to avoid some of the shoals that the, uh, that uh, Secretary of State Clinton and President Clinton ran into and they tried to do this heavy lift. So they engaged uh, the pharmaceutical industry, they engaged the insurance industry. We had the typical Delta Dell and revolving door of the uh, captains of, of, the, of these industries at the table for the creation of the legislation. And so what we ended up with a ha- was a half measure. And we also had a situation where individual states were given the option as to whether or not to opt in for a Medicare, Medicaid expansion. In the states that were Republican that chose not to embrace the opportunity in the ACA, we've seen, uh, we saw public health outcomes in particular playing out right now to be much worse. And so, uh, you know, and now, Quite frankly, um, our conversation hasn't caught up with the reality that there's no way out of this without universal health care. You will not be able to get the kind of surveillance of the population and then the proactive treatment required to get this uh, virus under control and the next iterations that will surely come without universal health care. But you saw the reaction to uh, proposals about that by Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren, um, many Democrats were kind of reluctant to, because the word socialism uh, gets uh, brought out every time somebody even comes up with an idea like that. Well, I, I think that the degree to which they're reliant on their situational awareness on the corporate news, they you can understand they're, they're kind of reluctant. But uh, my uh, my sense of this is that uh, both in terms of the public health crisis that's upon us and the economic one, the indicators are broken because the decline in the economy, the macroeconomy, has happened so fast, is so wide and so deep, it really defies even measurement. So if you're going to try to come up with the right size proposal to be proactive, they will be by definition undersized. 
You do a lot of reporting on uh, areas like transportation and emergency services. Haven't essential workers in, in those and other areas been especially hard hit by the pandemic? And considering the fact that many of them are uh, dispar- well, disproportionately women and people of color, the, the, the so-called essential workers? Well, actually, that's part of the architecture I was talking about. And so we have a situation where if you're fortunate enough to be in a business where you can work from home, um, uh, then you are kind of insulated, if you will, from the worst aspects of this pandemic. One of the the great uh, underreported parts of the story is the actual death toll of um, first responders and essential workers throughout the pandemic. And so what you have is, and I will tell you, we've talked about this before too, that 100,000 number, I believe, and we've seen solid reporting from the Financial Times that uses uh, excess death mortality, which is looking at, say, the last three or four years of the number of normal deaths in any given area. And this has been done by the Financial Times and other reliable outlets. And then compare that number of, of deaths to what we've been experiencing over over the last couple of months. And their estimate is that that death total is like, it's probably underestimating it by 60%. And so um, it's probably much larger than that. I mean, one of the things we saw- Although conservatives are arguing, conservatives are arguing that uh, they have really been blown out of proportion uh, and that any kind of death uh, can wind up being uh, included in the 100,000. Well, that is, uh, if you look at the granular basis of how we know what we know, right? And that's what we always Mm -hmm. need to ask ourselves and those that we are facing off with in the debate. I'm using that information based on granular reporting from frontline individuals who are doing the work of handling the corpses. That would be a primary source. And so in New York City, what we saw during the worst of it, EMTs reporting and, and as a matter of fact, filing reports to the FDNY, not a leftist front organization that they were experiencing, instead of 20 to 30 fatal heart attacks a day, 280 at home, in people's homes. So we had the situation where Governor Cuomo would be presenting people who had left the hospital, who had been discharged, as good news numbers. Mm -hmm. And in reality, in many cases, an unknown number went home to die in their parlor. So I'm saying that we don't really have a sense of it. And if you, I talked to undertakers, the, uh, the head of the New Jersey Trade Association for Funeral Directors, told me that it was his view that there was a massive underreporting with the way it was being done. So those are the people I'm talking to. Now, I want everybody listening to know that Bob Henley is my guest today on Leonard Locate at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. You reported on Tuesday about a bill in the New York State Legislature to give dispatchers first responder status. Right. Aren't dispatchers comparatively safe uh, in a dispatch center of some kind? Uh, what risks uh, do they well, face? Well, actually, this has been tracked over a long period of time, that when you, as a career, take uh, calls over the phone for someone who is in immediate distress or harm, or has experienced a catastrophic incident like someone being beheaded in a car accident and you're trying to take their um, information over the phone, that you experience um, the stress of that occasion. Plus, you what you do in that period of time in real time has consequences. And so if you misread the situation, 
if you if you if you if your dyslexia acts up because your blood sugar is low and you reverse numbers, people die. And that done as day in day out as an occupation is a lot more stressful. And what they've shown through, I think, Northern Illinois University did studies that tracked the, the psychological impact. And so they have a similar profile to on-the-scene first responders. So in that article, you mentioned that an NYPD dispatcher can earn about $53,000 after three years on the job. Um, that's kind of difficult to, to live on in an expensive city like New York. <laughs> well, dispatcher... Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say. No, and then, is, then if they get that, PTSD, it's even going to be a more serious problem for them. Well, and here and here's the best part: they make more money than FDNY EMTs that are preponderantly um, uh, people of color, and many of them women who make. Uh, and here, this goes back to the whole racist frame that we opened this conversation up in. Imagine that baked right into. New York City, the progressive uh, beacon for the world, you have a situation where FDNY EMTs in the front lines of this pandemic are making like $45,000, and uh, their primarily white male counterparts for the fire department started $85,000. So that's yeah. just, and so uh, they're, you know, in the case of the NYPD dispatchers, the other thing that's not widely understood is it is a paramilitary organization. And so if there is no relief for you, as there wasn't during this pandemic, you're not going home. So you have fun and giggles for two shifts. And mm. then you just basically, so it is, uh, it's a real meat grinder. And it's one of these things that um, is really widely underappreciated. And that's one thing about this essential worker moment is it's giving an opportunity for us to, uh, to look at all these professions um, that I, I call like the lazy Susan effect, right? We know that the groceries turn around in the closet. We have no idea how it works. Well, you you uh, just sent me a notice that in a unanimous vote, the New York City Council just backed pay parity for the fire department's EMT workforce because they make almost half of what their fellow uniformed first responders and police and fire make. Well, and and the council's unanimous vote, as as great and solitary as that is, um, as a practical matter, won't necessarily force the mayor's hand. Uh, mm. The mayor has kind of gone on the wrong side of this EMT question. I asked him about this, I guess, uh, maybe a year ago on Martin Luther King Day, about this kind of plantation system that's existed in the FDNY. Uh, basically, since uh, the uh, EMS left, it was taken out by Giuliani away from um, Health and Hospitals Corporation, where he used to live, and, and given to the FDNY. And his approach up to now has been that EMT work is different. Um, and in reality, what we saw with the, the COVID pandemic is that they, they are facing all of these kinds of invisible dangers. And, and the other part of this, it's so different. This is true for all first responders. What is so unique about this challenge is it's not just that they're putting themselves on the line. So that's understood, right? When you become a peace officer, firefighter, or EMT. But by making yourself vulnerable to this virus, you potentially bring it home to your family. And that's, that's the piece of this that's not widely understood. 
Now, Republican Congressman Peter King has joined Democrats in sponsoring uh, legislation in, in Congress called the Pandemic Heroes Compensation Act. What would that right. law do? And are, is he the only Republican who's supporting it? Well, so far, but he has a pretty good track record with bills like this. The, the precedent for this, this is being spearheaded by uh, Representative Carol Maloney and um, Jerry Nadler. Um, uh, Senator Duckworth uh, has also joined in. Uh, and uh, basically, it's being uh, modeled after the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund. Uh, which grew out of the, the Droga Act. And there's some amazing historical parallels between what happened with the World Trade Center and the tremendous toll paid by both the lower Manhattan community and first responders and um, uh, public employees and, and construction workers that rebuilt uh, uh, lower Manhattan. And so what this would do is provide uh, support for the families and and for the individuals who are essential workers, there wouldn't be a distinction between public and private sectors. So if you're a utility worker, if you're a nurse working for a private hospital, as so many were and, and during the worst of the pandemic, or if you're a UPS driver. And, and so basically the definition here to get in the door for this would be you're working outside in an area whereby state decree, everyone else has to stay home. Okay. And so then if you get sick or die um, or your family has consequences of your essential service, this program would pr provide support. And it would also um, it would have a special master and it would be out of the Treasury Department. The VCF fund has been run out of a special master through the Department of Justice. So uh, the other thing that's really not being discussed is we're seeing already long term disability consequences of the coronavirus. I've done stories about uh, we have a court officer who lost his arm. Uh, he mm. came off ventilator. There were complications. Um, a young man working in the PATH train, which runs between Newark and uh, New York and New Jersey. He had blood clots in his legs. He worked um, supporting PATH train service. And so these are the good news stories. These people survived. And so there's going to be a question of how 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 do we compensate them? Because I answered the call when other people stayed home. Now, New York City has been called the epicenter of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, what's happening in New York and, and New Jersey uh, in the less in, in the more rural areas? Are, are we seeing hotspots there as well? It has been. I mean, <clears throat> the, there has been uh, Southern Jersey was kind of behind what happened in Northern Jersey and New Jersey, Bergen County, um, uh, right across the river, uh, right to the west of Manhattan was the heaviest concentration. The lower part of the state, <clears throat> it had much lower numbers. But again, in in particular pocket areas, urban areas, where you had situations where people um, had chronic disease and weren't getting treated, right? So they already are rolling into this, uh, this 21st century plague with diabetes, with asthma, with heart disease, with cancer, with some underlying pre-existing condition. Why for them, this was deadly. Now, one of my producers is from Ulster County in the Hudson River Valley, where a nursing home has suffered at least 30 deaths, over 40% of the deaths in that county. 
But numbers like those are are tiny compared to New York City. What attention do they get from the major news outlets? Well, one of the problems has been that <clears throat> we're at this moment of national crisis with things deteriorating like they are after a cycle of um, the real decimation of of local reporting. So I think Pew estimates that we've lost around 50% of local reporters. Um, as a frame of reference, I'm 64. When I was 17, starting at the Ransomara Reporter in Burton County, I worked as a reporter while I was a senior in high school. I would cover meetings. There would be three other adults who drove there um, who would make a living reporting on local government. That architecture is largely gone. Um, and so as a consequence, we have uh, particularly rural areas where uh, we've had the downsizing because of this for-profit rationing system of healthcare. Uh, we closed hospitals in rural areas. So right where these things are blowing up, um, we're not having reporting. And in fact, the reporting that is really shining an important light in places like the meatpacking communities in the Midwest are these weeklies that against all odds hung on to report about the insane things that are going on in these meatpacking and in, and in these uh, towns that have, uh, where prisons are such a big part of the economy. I might also add, one thing that I've coming out in salon is that it's important to keep in mind, we talked about Trump dismantling the public safety, uh, the public health of, of the country, the things that were basic. One of the things that came out of the Affordable Health Care Act was the Obama administration uh, was attempting to use the billions of dollars we pay to long-term care and skilled nursing providers to have them be accountable and to have better infection control. That's right. And so what did Trump do as soon as he got in, water down the infection control uh, as a consequence of getting largesse from the very same industry the government has to regulate? I mean, this is the kind of fish in the barrel we're going on here. When you have a despot take over the government and you have a country that is uh, that has a media that is in such disrepair, this is the kind of stuff they can get away with. Well, a study by researchers at Columbia found that tens of thousands of lives could have been saved if measures to control the spread of the virus had been taken a week or two earlier. Uh, and President Trump reacted to the study from the Mailman School at Columbia by calling the university a liberal, disgraceful institution. Um, have any local or national officials acknowledged that more should have been done? Well, this is... Uh... And I'm sure that Columbia could use it as a fundraising tool, right? Uh, one of the things that um, has to be done here, and I'm in the process of doing it, is uh, reconstructing the TikTok of what officials knew and when they knew it. One of the things that Governor Cuomo has done to his credit is to explain what it was, what's the critical information uh, that uh, officials had about the nature of this virus. We know that there were reports that started sparking around like you were really a nerd in January. Uh, we know that at the end of December that the ophthalmologist in, uh, in China who first flagged this uh, issue in his personal practice and got into trouble with officials where he was, you know, uh, castigated and made to make a public apology, he ended up dying. He had to make a public apology for saying the truth. He did die from uh, COVID. Um, and we know that that Trump has tried to project a narrative that this came out of China. But as Governor Cuomo has rightly pointed out, 
that misses the fact that it had already gotten its footing in Europe and then came back into the United States through the East Coast. So that's important to stipulate to that. Then the other no. thing that is key here is, I mean, that's a big deal, right? Um, that's no, uh, and then the other thing too is that the CDC itself um, had failed in key areas, even though it historically been a world-class institution when it came to public health. Um, it blew the first round of tests that were required. And then it also came up with this sliding guidance throughout the entire incident, which set the stage, and we've talked about this, set the stage for the proliferation of the disease. One very important thing, which is the equivalent, if you will, of Governor Whitman's EPA false pronouncement of the air is safe to breathe in lower Manhattan when it was not, and when the agency and the government knew it was not, was the CDC's decision in early March to tell people and healthcare professionals that N95 masks, which we now are familiar with, which is the most, um, uh, probably the most aggressive form of infection control. It's a, it has to be fit to your face. And um, you're supposed to wear one of those per clinical encounter. That's right. You see your patient, the patient leaves, you take it off and throw it away. If your healthcare professional didn't do that before the CDC sliding guidance, you could get into trouble. The CDC, to help out the president and to help manage inventory control, because they were worried they didn't have enough, told people they could adopt their N95 for the week like a pet and bring it back and forth in their lunch bag. And at the time, the New York Nurses Association, once again, a union, says if this goes forward without any kind of correction, the nurses will get sick, the hospitals will be a place where people catch the disease, and you'll end up spreading the virus. I submit to you that's exactly what happened. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Before Bob and I get back to our conversation, I'd like to take a few moments to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. Uh, we need all of our loyal listeners to step up right now and, and to go to our website, give to WBAI.org, or, or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station healthy and on the air. Again, the number 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. Bob, as, as someone who has reported for several public radio stations over the years, in addition to all of your print work, you know just how important it is to support independent media during the uh, crisis, this crisis in particular, because we really uh, are not getting the kind of, we, we don't rely on the kind of funding that other places do. And we are, we're seeing a lot of listeners cutting back on their support because they just need that money to get through. Well, I think that in this period of time, there's no doubt that the most essential commodity is information. And when you're in a circumstance where you're very, uh, your health and your family's well-being are related to how well you understand 
the science and the politics behind the things that you're being told to live by by the government, I would submit to you that your source of information is about probably the most important thing you've got going. And WBAI has uh, doesn't take ads, or doesn't take foundation money because we really do want to be as independent as possible and uh, to not have to worry about somebody saying, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I'm going to not uh, support you anymore. So Right. And then we know. Right. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say that one of the things that's happened is we're in a we're reliant on uh, a media TikTok that is is driven increasingly by corporate priorities. And so it's limited our choices and everything. And so you can go to the store and have like 10 different kinds of cottage cheese, but there's only two candidates for president. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's ended up these non choices where, um, and so what has sprung up has been this authentic community based outlet. Um, and I just want to say too, it's, it, I just am so thankful to Reggie Max and, and, uh, 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 Michael Haskins, who keep this thing going uh, as engineers, it's so important to understand the human um, part of this, the, the essential workforce that keeps this station going and, and the personal bravery that they have displayed and all the people that have, the independent producers that come forward and to get things on the air. And the things you hear here, you just won't hear anywhere else. And by the way, it's Reggie, his name is Reggie Johnson. Uh, Reggie but- Johnson. Uh, one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out uh, your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station or what we call a BAI buddy. And I don't know if you've heard about this, Bob, but we have a special offer for listeners who sign up to become BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during this show. Uh, if they make a contribution, a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez and Lodge, and that's $10, $15, $20 spread out over the year allows us to be able to plan for the future and have some cash flow. But if they decide to do it, they can join me and nine other listeners for what's turned out to be our second teleconference event, uh, the second My wow. Dinner with Leonard. The first one has already been filled. with uh, We have 10 listeners who have already become members. But now, but some listeners uh, wondered whether we couldn't organize another one. And so we are going to do a second My Dinner with Leonard. It'll be uh, a Zoom meeting. And, and, you know, we'll talk about things, um, things that uh, from my career, but we'll also find out what Can listeners want to talk about. Of course. Well, uh, I'll try to sneak you in. I'll see how, how, many, how many spaces there are. But you definitely can come to the second one because we we're just starting to to uh, offer openings on that one. We've already filled the first one. Uh, and so, what are you serving? <laughs> well, we're serving whatever people want, and some some of them are probably going to have some noshes. Some might bring some right. drinks to the to their tables. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be incredible. But uh, uh, we we need that call from you. Uh, it's to, that show of support, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to WBAI.org, uh, and uh, say that you want to participate in my dinner with Leonard. Um, 
But whether you want to sign up for that or whether whatever level you're able to show your support for the show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., everything helps. The important thing is that you take that step, keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners. And if this show has been a regular part of your daily life, uh, consider stepping up for someone who's just discovering it. Give us that, give them the gift of an hour of conversation, insight, and knowledge that we try to bring you each installment of this program. Uh, we uh, we have a pretty diverse uh, lineup regularly. Um, Bob Henley is one of our regulars, but we cover pretty much everything, whether it's physics or the arts or, well, entertainment, a wide range of things. Um, and we would, really wouldn't want to have it any other way, but one thing at least every fan of this show that I've met seems to have in common is a love of learning new things. And we can only keep it going with the support of listeners like you. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to wbaiorg to support independent radio in the New York metropolitan area. And don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. Bob, anything you want to add to that before we go back to our no, conversation? I, just, I, I think it's uh, it's essential, and especially coming into 2020 and the election, and more importantly, the the importance to have an informed uh, uh, electorate, and and even locally to know where where the where the pressure points are, and and where we need to help each other in real time. Now, Governor Cuomo has been getting a lot of good press. Uh, he's often uh, presented as the opposite of President Trump. But The Guardian reported on Tuesday that Governor Cuomo signed legislation in April that shielded hospital and nursing home executives from lawsuits stemming from the pandemic. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, haven't Democrats opposed Republican efforts to do something similar nationwide? Well, there's, of course, the I didn't say the Guardian report, but it is important to uh, keep in mind that the pandemic uh, found us and our leaders as we were before the pandemic. And we know, I mean, uh, similarly, uh, Governor Cuomo has been very resistant to efforts by Senator Rivera and someone Godfrey to have a single payer or universal health care in New York state. Um, and he's been had been very much a supporter of the status quo. And what is the status quo? Uh, as uh, as has been pointed out by many other activists, um, you have a situation where we have you know one kind of care. If you're someone that is probably uh, white and affluent, or even if you're just of a certain have a certain kind of insurance, you're going to get one kind of reimbursal for your care. And um, this has been played out, shown with the work by Katie McFadden, who's uh, a midwife activist, who's been looking at the health disparities in in Brooklyn, where we see that if you happen to be in a hospital reliant on Medicaid and funding for the way that we the way that we pay for um, uh, for health care for poor communities where people can't afford high end insurance. Why we have, don't you know, poor outcomes. There's a direct connection between the way we ration care and ration the resources and the existence of things like high levels of infant mortality, maternal mortality, 
And similarly, when it comes to the prevalence of chronic diseases, there's a direct connection. So imagine my surprise where Governor Cuomo in his post-pandemic, mid-pandemic incarnation uh, tells the world that there's a connection, don't you know, between health disparities and people of color and the terrible toll of COVID. Now, at that point, I would have thought he would have blown the flag of surrender and said he endorsed universal health care. But no. So there's still a lot of education to be done here. And so we have a country still with the power structures in denial about the real consequences of this pandemic. Well, according to MarketWatch, about 70 percent of nursing homes are run for profit. And private equity firms own about 11% of nursing facilities in the U.S. Researchers have found that private equity buyouts of nursing nursing homes are linked with higher patient-to-nurse ratios, lower quality care, and declines in patient health outcomes. So if they're granted further immunity from liability, what incentive is there for them to try to improve? Well, I know, and I think also this comes back to the campaign cash, and no contra- no conversation can be complete without talking about the fact that we have this uh, system of health care that's informed and regulated by gatekeepers who are also trying to raise money um, in the form of campaign largesse and maybe careers down the line in the industry they're regulating. Um, The other thing, too, about this is that, and this comes back again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it comes back to the need and the central requirement for uh, universal health care. Because one of the things that happens is you end up, when you have a population that's less well, and then they are aging, then what's required in terms of nursing is much more elaborate. And that's one of the things that's happened. You know, they... To the Obama administration's credit, the rules and regulations for these assisted living and uh, skilled nursing facilities had not been looked at since 1991. And by 2016, it, uh, they came up with something comprehensive that required, like, let's have one person that's a healthcare professional in- responsible for infection control. That's a good idea. How about we have a doctor actually assess the patient coming into one of these places when they come in and come up with a plan about how they could be healthier and how we can sustain their good health. Sounds like a plan. And so Trump comes in and it hardly made headlines at the time. The Los Angeles Times had a great story and the Kaiser Health Health News people were on it in 2017. But for the most part, this destruction of the progress we were making was done just below the radar. And so Governor Cuomo was operating in that universe. And so it's up to us to be well-informed and hold him accountable, even though he's fabulously popular now. The last time we spoke, just over a month ago, on on April 24th, new unemployment claims had hit 26 million. Uh, Nearly 41 million have filed for unemployment benefits since the pandemic began uh, to severely affect the United States. 2.1 million just last week. Well, we're talking about a U.S. labor force uh, of 165 million people, 41 million is nearly 25% of that. Uh, unemployment during the Great Depression hit a peak in 1933 at around 25%. Could unemployment grow further to exceed what happened during the Depression? I tell you, because the altimeter is broken on the plane, it's mm-hmm. already there, Leonard. 
It's already there. And that's so is this the, the second depression? Well, is this going to be called the second and depression? I'll tell you why. Well, I'll tell you why. And it's going to be, let's please, let's call it what it is, a Trump depression, shall we? Let's marry those the two things together so that when he finally leaves this earthly plane, the first thing that's mentioned is depression, second thing, pandemic, and third, impeachment. There's a goal. Hmm. Um, but no, and we've already seen, and why, why do I say that, is that you have a number of people that are off the radar that make their living cash money day to day as a per diem worker. You have gig workers, and those folks don't show up on the radar of the Bureau of Labor. People who live off their tips as well. Uh, they, they make right. a very low, a limited amount of money, and they rely on tips. So even if they go right. for unemployment insurance, uh, how do you add in the, the tip factor? Uh, on a Saturday night as opposed to the low tip factor on a Tuesday night. Right. We have been running a country that was fragile architecture all along. And it's part that fragility is part of why we have the current imbecile in the White House. In 2016, when Senator Clinton, Secretary Clinton went around the country uh, kind of half-heartedly to talk about a recovery, people knew it wasn't true. And what you had was 40 percent of the population before the pandemic, according to the Federal Reserve, had said that people couldn't bring together $400 without borrowing it. Okay, you had um, things, the United Way, another mainstream charity organization documenting this huge upsurge of the working poor so that in places like New Jersey, 40 percent were either below the poverty line or struggling week to week to survive in places like the district that um, AOC came out of. A majority of the households were either poor or struggling week to week. That was pre-pandemic. So what do you think this is going to look like? Well, the unemployment rate remained over 20 percent for four years during the Depression from 1932 through 1935. Are any economists or other researchers suggesting that we could see that kind of long-term decline again, uh, a, a decline that President Roosevelt dealt with by developing New Deal programs like the World, the Works Progress Administration? Governor Cuomo has suggested something along those lines here, putting people to work uh, building the, the infrastructure. But do you think that's right. likely? Well, this is, I mean, I would say that uh, Joe Stieglitz um, and Paul Kirkland have had, um, and, and Professor Richard Wolf, no stranger to listeners of this show, uh, have all come up with, uh, I think, uh, good narratives about ways to go, right? It's not, it's, not uh, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. The political will is problematic because it, it has to do with radically altering our priorities. Um, there's no doubt that you don't even have to get as fancy as, as bridges. Um, contact tracing, right? The thing that's required to really get a handle on this uh, is a labor-intensive thing. It would require hundreds of thousands of people across the United States. Um, uh, one of the lessons that came out of, and it's, it's, it's instructive to go back and read the history around the, the great uh, the Spanish flu uh, pandemic, uh, 1918 to 1920, there were tremendous advances in public health that came out of that. And one of the things that came out of it was an awareness that that a disease is not in the hospital. It's in the community. So if you want to beat the disease and you want to get your community healthy, it starts in the community. So you need to stand up. I mean, we're looking at, by some estimates, uh, the Peace Command is long about this over the weekend. As many as a million nurses we're going to need over the next four or five years. 
I mean, the scale of, I think, 2030, actually. So you're talking about the fact that we have so starved because of the greed that's afoot in controlling society, so many basic public health functions, that there's a full employment plan, and we haven't even touched on the implications of dealing with global warming, which is another great full employment yeah. opportunity. Now, uh, during the primary season, before the pandemic had really taken hold, Joe Biden dismissed calls for major reform to health care by noting the problems that Italy was then going through. Um, do you, are we going to see changes? Are, are we hearing something different from Biden and, and other Democrats now on, on single payer or public option or more regulation of insurers and big pharma? The, some of the reporting I've seen indicates that the platform is indeed something that what's emerging out of these study groups uh, is going to be far to the left and will be considered what was left is going to be mainstream when it comes to the Democratic Party. A lot of it, um, I think, is just the, the reality that um, if they're going to have any kind of resonance with uh, the communities they need to vote, right, they're going to have to speak in a very direct way to the needs of that community. And one area where this is very clear, of course, is something um, is, is certainly healthcare, which has now become front and center. And the other part of it is going to be, for instance, student loan forbearance. Like one of the things that it should have been done before, but wide scale student loan forbearance is going to be essential. We already had a struggling situation where our, Uh, 20-something, some some of which I'm very familiar with, some of them are my daughters, um, are in a very difficult situation where they had a huge amount of student debt. The wages were not commensurate with what they had spent in terms of getting the college education we told them they had to have. And now they're they're putting off um, forming family. And that has some real macroeconomic consequences for a population that's increasingly aging and is going to require replacement workforce, especially since we now hate immigrants so much, uh, if it wants to have any semblance in the social contract that this country has been relying on since the Second World War. Bob, we have very little time left, but I want to address the matter of Don, uh, President Trump often attacking journalists who challenge him. Uh, and this latest thing where he's accused MSNBC host Joe Scarborough of killing a former staff member two decades ago. Some people are suggesting that this is all just a way of distracting public attention away from uh, from uh, concerns about the pandemic. But is, do you think it's a good strategy for, for gaining votes in, in the, the next election? Well, it, I think what it does do is it keeps the the corporate news media f- narrative focused on the president. And he's made a calculation that it's better to be bad news than out of the news. And so as a consequence, he's taken the whole country along through this magical mystery ride, the result of which we've not seen yet, but I, I fear is increasingly more dystopian. In, New, uh, in a New York Times opinion piece, political scientists... Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson noted that President Trump and the Republicans are gambling that they can win despite widespread opposition to conservative policies that favor the rich. Well, if the GOP wins in November, what would that say about the state of American democracy? And please make it brief because I'm really got to get out of here. Okay. Well, no, we just got to we just got to make sure the postal service is defunded so we can vote by mail. Was that quick enough? 
Okay. Bob Henley covers <laughs> national and local politics, <laughs> economics, and, and policy for public radio, Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations. He's a regular on this show. Bob, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I'm at Stuck Nation, too. Don't forget that. Stuck okay. Nation, so favorite. so that's All how right. people can reach you, going to Stuck Nation? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes. And that brings Take us care. to the end. That brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Hugh Sansom, who produced today's interview, and to our live engineer Reggie Johnson and executive producer Jesse Lent for their invaluable help throughout the week. If you're just discovering us and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show, our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to comment on this or any of our shows, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very difficult financial position because of the pandemic. And if you value the uh, the kind of informative, in-depth discussions that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to WBAI.org, or call 516-620-3602 and help keep community radio for the 99% alive in the New York metropolitan area. And a reminder that if you become a BAI buddy, and that's uh, to the tune of 10, 15, 20, whatever uh, amount of money you're willing to, uh, to give uh, on a monthly basis, help to sustain the station over the long run, you can also participate in my dinner with Leonard. Uh, that's when, when you call in and make your pledge or when you go to the website, uh, make sure that you let them know that uh, the contribution is the name of Leonard Lopez at large and that you want to be one of the attendees at my dinner with Leonard. Again, the number 516-620-3602. Our website is give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. Uh, we. Um, Hope that you'll join us again on Monday. We're not here tomorrow, but on Monday when conservative political commentator David Frum will discuss his new book called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. And I hope to see you then.